Hello, I'm Alex Mosed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. Today is election day, and I hope everyone has gotten a chance to exercise their right to vote or, or is in the process of exercising their right to vote. You know, this country is so special. Uh, this really is the greatest place, greatest country in the world. Uh, and it's very important that, you know, I think everyone uh, leverage and use the freedoms which so many people have uh, that have come before us have, you know, have, have fought so hard to help protect uh, those freedoms and, and these privileges that we hold so dear. So I um, hope everyone is in the process of doing that. A little fun topic to start us off today, however, is uh, that, you know, I guess this whole debate, you know, is there quote unquote life on uh, other planets? It seems like it's kind of answered because now there is water on the moon. Who would have thought that? Um, I guess this article is kind of saying, well, uh, we all expected there to be water on the moon, and now there's just more water on the moon than we had thought. News to me, I didn't realize that there was water on the moon. But apparently there is, and it's in the form of basically frozen water, um, which uh, they're saying astronauts could now heat up the water, tap into that water, and then use it for a whole host of things, and it's a pretty big deal that there's water on the moon i mean technically where there's water isn't there life isn't that kind of the rule of thumb i guess you know this is just very frozen water and that's the thing um but uh yeah there's water on the moon and uh i think just now even more emphasis to try and get to the moon uh by 2024 is the program here this artemis program to get uh, astronauts back on the moon uh, by 2024, and then we can eventually use that as a launching point to Mars or, you know, a whole slew of things here. If we're right, water is going to be more accessible for drinking water, for rocket fuel, everything that NASA needs water for. They're saying these cold traps, you know, could kind of be readily available and a great way to, to, to get water from these things. So, um, hmm. pretty interesting. Okay. Uh, moving on to a uh, little bit deeper topics here. The Triggered Graveyard. You know, I've, we've spoken a lot on the show about uh, that I personally believe that these content platforms should be more open. Actually, all of them across the board. I think that, you know, the past few years have had purposeful action by pretty much every content platform of significant scale. Uh, get much more friendly to um, censoring material, uh, penalizing and, and throwing off, you know, users, uh, banning them from the platform. It's not just a partisan thing, obviously, now because today's election day, everything is extremely partisan. But, you know, we've seen this with just the coronavirus, for example. Health experts have differing opinions on what to do with coronavirus, including, uh, you know, White House uh, administration, health experts, and, and a whole slew of different doctors, you know, now just get censored. This guy here, this professor kicked off from Facebook, says, I've been evicted from Facebook, no explanation, no appeal. 
uh, and, you know, have no recourse, right? So, I mean, there are a myriad of examples of this. If you focus kind of on a bunch of other areas that aren't even in the kind of mainstream partisan um, talking points, still, you see just mass censorship by these platforms that are trying to determine, you know, what, what you can or cannot say. And I think fundamentally that is the wrong direction for them. And, you know, the right path is to embrace a much more open policy. This segment, the Triggered Graveyard, is really focusing on, well, which tech companies have gone in the complete opposite direction of open. Um, Twitter being the, the most obvious one. Um, I think, you know, we, we saw recently Twitter had their uh, Q3, Q3 earnings results. This big dip. That's a 20% collapse in their share price from uh, about 50 bucks a share to 40 bucks a share. Today it's up a few percent um, trying to rebound and they announced some share buybacks and, and, and that kind of stuff. But Twitter stock plunges a strong earnings beat offset by slow user growth. So they actually did a good job monetizing the usage on the platform. But the problem was that their user growth was you know, almost all but ground to a halt. It added just 1 million new users versus 20 million in the previous quarter and 6 million in the year ago period, right? So Q3 of 2019, they added 6 million new users, uh, net new users in Q3, they added 1 million here. And estimates were for them to add 9 million, to bring them to 195 million daily active users. And now they have 187. It's not exactly clear to us how much of this is because they failed to attract new versus maybe their churn went up, right? Or, or just maybe they didn't, people didn't leave the platform, but they just weren't as active. And I think, you know, there are myriad examples here about how Twitter has, I would say, easily become the most aggressive of the large content platforms in their partisanship in the past few months leading up to the election. And I, again, I, I don't think that's a winning approach. I don't think that being uh, more aggressive with the penalizing action that you take against your users if they are posting content that you know the platform doesn't agree with or that you know users are complaining about, that you then penalize the producers, you penalize the suppliers, the people posting the content. I don't think that's working, and I think we're seeing that here uh, with Twitter's numbers. You know, let's. Let's dig into this some more. Here is, uh, I'm looking at Twitter's letter to their shareholders. This stat here. So average US daily active users was 36 million for Q3. Compared to 30 million in the same period of the previous year. Right? So that's compared to 30 million D DAUs in Q3 of 2019. And then compared to 36 million DAUs in Q2 of 2020, so the prior quarter. So what they've basically, what, what they're seeing is from Q2 of this year to Q3 of this year, flat engagement, flat engagement. That is like the, the death tailspin of any tech company, right? These businesses, as we all know, they are valued on growth, high growth, aggressive growth. 
And there's only so much dollars you can squeeze out of the same number of users. So clearly Twitter got better at squeezing dollars out of the same pot of users, but the growth completely fell off a cliff. If anything, I bet they were actually going to see a contraction and I bet the product teams at Twitter were going crazy trying to, you know, hit you with push notifications, right? If they they need to get that activity up. So they were probably just going all out, everything that they could do to activate um, and, and hit at least par. I mean, if they had actually gone down, right, from 36 million to 35 million, for example, you would have had a lot more than 20% drop in, in their stock. And I think a lot of this just goes back to the leadership. I mean, when you look at... What, the the bizarre thing to me is that Elliott Management, right, the activist investor that has put money into Twitter, they just completed their their CEO review and they've decided to keep Jack Dorsey on. It makes no sense to me. I don't understand why you keep the guy on when, you know, I think they have polluted uh, a lot of what Twitter stands for by becoming so partisan. And... um you know, it actually goes against, I think, the core value prop of platforms. It goes against actually the original mission of Twitter, help connect people and share information. And so, you know, if anything, maybe what you're seeing is that Elliot just doesn't have many options. And, and because the employee base is so partisan that they have kind of devout loyalty to Jack Dorsey. And, and maybe Elliot just doesn't have any options, right? If they get rid of Jack, they're going to have a mutiny on their hands. I mean, look at Jack uh, testifying here in, in, in front of Congress uh, or, you know, dialing in uh, from last week. I, you know, if, if it was me, I would have gotten rid of Jack Dorsey. I think that's an easy decision. Um, when you look at the level of partisanship, uh, just the active bias in the company, you look at um, now flat user growth as a result. You look at, um, you know, not really much product innovation. Uh, I mean, they're doing product innovation to maximize ads. But when you think about business model innovation, you know, Twitter's had the same content, uh, core transaction forever. You know, they tried to do Vine a long time ago, right? They tried to get into videos that didn't work. Uh, you've now seen TikTok take off, right? But we've spoken about this before on the show. Why, why didn't Twitter capture TikTok? Isn't, isn't TikTok the, the video version of Twitter in, in many regards? Different demographics and all these kinds of things. But, you know, there just seem like so many missed opportunities where you got a company that's now a little bit over $30 billion in market cap. You have an activist investor in there. They just lost five to $8 billion worth of market cap um, worth of value. And uh, because I think of the, the actions directly and, and the culture directly instituted by the CEO, Jack Dorsey. Another example, Expensify, um, their CEO sent out an email to all 10, 10 million of their customers uh, saying that all those customers should be voting for Joe Biden. You can, you can bet, you know, this caught a lot of media attention. There's a bunch of interviews. Why did you do it? And, and all this kind of stuff. I thought there's a few uh, quotations in here that I thought was, was pretty interesting. So 
Uh, right. Here's the quote. Anything less than a vote for Biden is a vote against democracy. You look at the language objectively, right? You know, he's saying if you vote for the Republican candidate, you're voting against democracy. This is a smart guy. This guy has built a great company. He's a smart guy. Look at some of this language in here. Nobody would criticize us if we did nothing. That's actually incorrect. We just had the Coinbase CEO. We covered him a few episodes ago. The Information, a technology Silicon Valley uh, media group, um, you know, came out lambasting the CEO of Coinbase when the CEO of Coinbase just, Coinbase just came out and said, we're not going to take any sides. We're going to remain neutral because we need to stay focused on our company mission. Jessica Lesson, the editor at the information, didn't really take too kindly to that. And act, we covered it on the show actively in her email to all of you know the information subscribers was was uh, supporting factions of employees inside of Coinbase to not leave and take the severance package that the Coinbase CEO offered everyone if they had a problem with taking a neutral stance, and she. People to stay strong and to you know carry the fight on and uh, and and kind of have these dissenting factions inside of Coinbase you know fight the good fight basically right so it's not true actually if you say we should be neutral and not and not take a public stance actually the um, biased media will come after you for being neutral. So here, Expensify depends on a functioning society and economy. Not many expense reports get filed during a civil war. I'm not editing the guys. This is, this is from the CEO. He's saying, we can't have a business if we go into civil war. God, I it's like everyone is tripping on ayahuasca. You know, Jack Dorsey openly talks about just going on ayahuasca trips. What is this guy on? As CEO of this business, it's my job to plot a course through any storm. And all evidence suggests that another four, parentheses, or as Trump has hinted, eight or more. I mean, the guy, the guy, he's just so, he cannot think objectively. Years of Trump leadership will damage our democracy to such an extent I'm obligated on behalf of shareholders to take any action I can to avoid it. I think he's lost it. I, I don't think he's fit to be CEO. It was a calculated choice, Barrett said. While it may be risky, he knew that sending it to more people meant that the message could be more effective. This wasn't me just firing off an email out of the blue. This was the result of an inclusive process that really engaged the whole company. It's an oxymoron. He's saying we have an inclusive process. We have an inclusive culture. Yet, if you don't vote for Biden, you're voting against democracy. It's just, these are just paradoxes, right? It's an oxymoron. It makes any logical person, you take the partisan out of it, your head explodes. Doesn't make any sense. The discussion was really, how do, we, how do we be very inclusive about engaging with dissenting opinions and treat them respectfully? His response is, well, I sent an email to all of our customers saying, if you don't vote for the Democrat, um, you're against democracy. That's his answer to being very inclusive. We want to have a diverse environment because diversity creates a wide range of different opinions 
And that diversity of perspectives brings creativity. It's kind of like, you know, if you say diversity 10 times, boom, you'll be diverse. Uh, the guy is not living in reality. A group of top tier employees, a, a, a expensifies equivalent of a Senate that then makes a call after weighing all of the different arguments presented on what the company's official position will be. In this case, that group concluded that Trump is a threat to democracy. Trump is a threat to democracy and that the company's policy would be to endorse Biden. So this article came out, you know, uh, maybe less than a week from his email. And they said that so far, no employees have resigned. Coinbase, by contrast, ended up having more than 5% of its employees take a severance package. So there's no word on whether or not Expensify is offering a severance package to employees that don't feel comfortable. I think they should. And I think that they are going to have pretty serious fallout, uh, not just from employees who clearly are not going to feel comfortable to speak up um, because it's clearly not an inclusive culture. Um, and I think actually legally, this brings them into, you know, a, a very interesting, uh, you know, there are a lot of workplace protections for employees that are discriminated against. And by the way, um, ideological discrimination is very real. Think about it. Religion. Religion's an ideology. If you are discriminated in the workplace against your religion, big no-no, a big lawsuit for you. What is the difference between having a political belief versus having a religious belief? I actually don't think there is much of a, of a difference. And I think that this this whole you know this whole jar it's all mumbo jumbo and uh, I think it just goes to show you just how emotional and how um, off kilter many people are in this country and 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 these two people in particular Jack Dorsey and this guy Barrett the CEO of Expensify I don't think that they are actually being appropriate shepherds of their business. I don't think that they're actually doing their shareholders justice. Now, let's look at this, right? I'd be curious if we could get, you know, if we get someone on from, this is First Round Capital, prominent VC firm. And at First Round, you know, they had this article here where they're talking about Expensify CEO and the tactics that doubled its customer base in just six months. They're praising the ground that David Barrett walks on. I wonder if First Round will be so supportive of David's decision in the past week or so. David has quickly come out to say that they haven't seen any customers switch. But that was two days after the email came out. I think they are going to see fallout from a customer base. I think they are going to see fallout from employees. And I ultimately think that the company is worse off for the actions taken because you do need inclusiveness. And inclusiveness is promoting um, political and ideological freedom within your company. And when your company takes a stance that it's this way or you're not supporting democracy, that's not promoting inclusiveness and diversity. No matter how many times you say it, that's not what you're doing. Um, so this is the triggered graveyard. I think these two companies and others that have gone, have, you know, have, have, have kind of removed logic and rational decision making uh, in, in the weeks and months leading up to the election. I think that those companies, the employees, and the shareholders are worse off for it. And ultimately, it comes down to the CEO. I think these two CEOs in particular have done an injustice to all of those 
uh, aforementioned parties. Quite unfortunate to see. Now, next topic is actually saying, well, what about Facebook? What about the tech monopolies, the content platform tech monopolies here, which, um, you know, they also, I think, in my opinion, have been too, too restrictive in the actions that they've taken against some of their producer community, Facebook included. But was Facebook hurt at all? Now, Facebook, by the way, relatively amongst the pack of them, them being Facebook, Google, YouTube, um, uh, you know, Twitter. You could you could throw in a Pinterest and some others, but you know, I think Snapchat. Um, of of the main kind of dominant content social networking platforms, Facebook, I actually think has been the most open relatively. I still think they need to be more open, but let's look at how Facebook has performed uh, these past few quarters. Actually, they've performed very well. And I think the problem with that is that what Facebook is seeing is that even though they have actually taken on a good amount of censorship, it has not hurt their business. Unlike Twitter. Twitter, granted, was much more aggressive in censorship, still is, but they are not a monopoly. And I've, I've said this before on the show, Twitter's not a monopoly, despite, you know, despite how dominant Twitter is in, you know, short form kind of like content, social networking, right? Uh, these tweets, it's still not a monopoly. Um, they don't have anywhere near the power with advertisers and uh, their users. They don't have, they're not a platform conglomerate. They don't have multiple content types. I think actually through their leadership's fault that they haven't been able to embrace new content formats uh, and, and, and platform business models. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. But they don't have that monopoly power that a Facebook has, that a Google has. And that's the real thing to look at here is you're actually seeing the process work. You're actually seeing the system work. When you have a dominant platform like Twitter, which abuses the core value and, and the core thesis for what platforms stand for, open connecting people, sharing information, right? Uh, collaboration, all these wonderful things. And you have a platform that actually goes against the grain on that, Twitter. Does it, does it get hurt? The answer is yes. And we've now seen that with Twitter. I think we're going to see that with Expensify. So the system works, right? There is, there is still a, a consequence for actions that are taken by the business that can materially impact that business's viability. When you get to monopoly status, that's where these things start to change, where the monopoly takes action that the community and the users may not like. But, but the monopoly is so strong and so sticky and so ingrained that it doesn't make a financial impact on the monopoly. The monopoly can still do and take action and take advantage of suppliers. That's how platforms take advantage when they get to monopoly status. They take advantage of suppliers, in this case, content creators. And we're actually seeing that in Facebook's case. They're actually thriving. And that's actually the scary lesson in all of this, right? 
Facebook can do just about anything that it wants and it won't negatively impact them. That is then when the role of regulation is needed to promote innovation and competition and protect people's individual freedoms. So let's look at Facebook. This is uh, earnings per share, first number, and then revenue. Uh, you've got them beating in Q2 and beating in Q3. Compare that to Twitter. Twitter, Q2, big misses, big misses on both earnings and revenue. They beat on earnings and revenue in Q3, but you have the slow user growth, basically flat user growth in the United States, right? That's the big problem for Twitter. So it's not impenetrable. It doesn't have that monopoly power. Facebook does. Facebook crushed Q3, uh, showing 12% year-over-year growth in, in their uh, DAUs, $1.82 billion on average for September of through September uh, or, or for September 2020. You know, their stock bumped up 4 or 5% uh, on, on their Q3 earnings release. Facebook is doing just strong. I mean, when you look at, for example, Q2 is when Facebook was, right? Boycott Facebook. That was the whole thing. Boycott Facebook, boycott Facebook, where the media wanted Facebook to be more restrictive and, and censor more. Um, and they actually didn't. And then everyone was saying, boycott Facebook, boycott Facebook. Let's look at their numbers. Okay, Q1, Facebook revenue, 2020, $17.7 billion. Q2, 18.6. Nice growth. They beat on revenue growth, right? Meanwhile, you saw Twitter miss. So, and, and now in Q3, where Twitter is missing on user growth, Facebook is strong on user growth. And when you think about what that user growth means, right? You've got Facebook, you've got Instagram, you've got WhatsApp, you've got Facebook Messenger, you've got platform conglomerate status. And so the business, you know, maybe in certain areas if they're seeing fall off, right? They just have so many tools in the toolbox to, uh, you know, to appear successful to Wall Street. And uh, that's that monopoly power. And so this is really where you need the role of regulation to help protect producers and suppliers when, when the platform now is emboldened. Right. If I'm in Facebook and especially Google, because the DOJ doesn't know what they're doing with antitrust lawsuits. But if I'm in these two tech monopolies, I'm emboldened by them because you actually were able to be very aggressive and actually annoy a lot of your users. And the business is doing just fine. If anything, the business is doing great. If anything, the stock has never been better. That's. That's the scary stuff, right? That's the real takeaway here. Um, okay. Last topic. I was covering, you know, past few episodes I've covered uh, Q2 GDP in the US versus Europe and, you know, how that did. So this was Q2 2020 US GDP on an annualized basis decreased at 32.9%. Basically, just need to divide that by four. It's really, you know, 
eight and eight point two, uh, roughly decrease quarterly decrease um, from in in Q two of twenty twenty, obviously due to COVID. So we had blockbuster results now that just came out recently for the Q three bounce back, and you know beat everyone's estimate here. Wall Street Journal is a great article on this. 7.4% increase in Q3 at 33.1% annual rate. So it's it's still a little bit under. We had we had a we had almost actually actually think it was about 8.9% decrease in Q2, and um, and now we have a 7.4. So it's not as the, the the growth rate, just if you're looking at the growth rate itself, if you go down by 33 and then you go up by 33, you're not actually back to par. That makes sense? So we aren't back to where we were pre-COVID from a GDP standpoint, but the economy, you can see that here. It's actually a great graph. Wall Street Journal has. Um, and you can see here, so quarterly GDP at, 18.58 trillion. Okay. And we were, you know, above 19. Another good way to visualize this was here. Um, in really the thing that took the biggest hit and has not recovered is consumer spending on services. So think travel, think hospitality, restaurants, right? All of that is just obviously falling off a cliff. And it, it, some of it's come back. You had a maybe 15, 16% rebound, but again, you had over a 20% decline. So you need much more than a 20% uh, uh, rebound to get back to par. That said, the delta on services was made up for by um, much stronger growth when it comes to consumer spending on goods um, and uh, private inventories and business investment has come back, private inventories. Uh, has residential investment. So basically what you've seen in a couple of these areas is you've seen things like a car boom. You're seeing a housing boom. You're seeing, you know, very strong parts of consumer spending kind of shift to other areas of the economy, right? Where people are moving out of cities and they're going into the suburbs. So you're still seeing very strong, strong spending, you know, and that's why we were able to get such a strong bounce back uh, in Q3 but we're still not back to, to where we were. Uh, but I think, you know, a very strong step in the right direction. Another funny aside is I was reading uh, what one of the regional, you know, one of the uh, regional Fed, uh, Fed transcripts was saying that they were looking at the Chinese GDP numbers. And there's a great quote that one of them made, uh, something to the effect that um, the, this, this, this regional Fed, uh, they trusted Chinese, the Chinese quarterly GDP numbers as much as they trusted the Chinese COVID case number. But I thought that was a pretty strong statement by then, and I was pretty actually glad to see them uh, go on the record saying something like that, where unfortunately we just can't trust what we're seeing. And actually they went a step further. They actually even went on to say that they've seen shaky um, and questionable GDP numbers out of China for the past few years now, um, not just uh, not just in the past couple quarters, but the past few years. So I thought, you know, they actually went even further on that statement. But um, anyway, hope everyone has a great, great election day. Hope everyone gets out there, vote, exercise that right, that privilege. 
And uh, we will talk to you later. Thanks for joining us.